Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of 2024, The Class of Activism. The episode for this week will actually be divided into two episodes, since the history of systemic racism is a long and extensive one. This is part one of two of my conversation with Olivia Spencer and Melissa Njai. Hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to another episode of 2024, The Class of Activism. I am Joseph and joining me in a room with dry acoustics this time is Olivia Spencer. Hey, how are y'all? And Melissa Njai. Hi, you guys can pronounce my last name right. I'm so that, happy. Yes, <laughs> yes. And that concludes the episode. I'm kidding. Yeah, <laughs> okay. I mean, really. Racism is canceled now. <laughs> yes, we did it, America. Ah, uh, not after last night. No, no, oh, yeah, no, definitely not. That's a whole different. Oh, that podcast. is a whole different thing. I think we're gonna have to add that episode in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, so today we're going to talk about the history of systemic racism. Uh, Olivia is a freshman psychology major in the honors program at Stetson University. She aspires to work in the prison system as a psychologist. And Melissa is the head of the Black Student Association at Stetson. She's a junior psychology major and planning to work within the foster care system. So we're going to cover the various government policies and systems from Reconstruction to now, such as segregation, redlining, the war on drugs, war on crime, police brutality, and also the cultural evolution of racism. Now before we get started, we thought that we should give our listeners a very quick recap of last night's presidential debate. Did we think this was a good idea? Did we really? Did, uh, <laughs> this is this really a good idea? <laughs> okay, so, so think of that scene in The Godfather where Sonny Corleone is shot in his car. I know that, that scene. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was the debate. For two hours. Uh, <laughs> it was bad. That, uh, what even, okay, I got about halfway through when I was about to tune in. I get on just different fact-checking websites, different live streams of what's going on. And the first thing I see is that our lovely president, Donald Trump, sat there and called a war veteran a loser. Someone who was addicted to drugs. Someone who, no matter what, no matter what has happened, they're still a human being. That was the first thing I saw of the debate. If that doesn't give anyone a hint to what that debate was like last night, mm-hmm. if you didn't watch it, then I really don't know what was. Just from like a psychology standpoint, it's just that he's very narcissistic to the point. He don't care who he hurts at this point. Like, he really doesn't. Some... It's not in his nature to care. Exactly. It's just not. Exactly. Stetson offered a uh, cultural credit for watching the debate with a bunch of people on Zoom, and I showed up like two minutes late to the debate, and it was already a shouting match, and I was like, what did I just walk into? (laughs) What is this? uh, That's just like the current state of America right now, though. Like, I feel like any other country that is just looking in they're just confused and baffled as to what in the world is going Mm -hmm. on here we're supposed to be the united states and it's just kind of like we have the republican states and the democratic states and the republican side and the democratic side or the liberal side and the conservative side and it's just no one really knows what's going on and being an 18 year old in this climate is very scary (laughs) and uh we just really need to emphasize also that chris wallace 
I don't think anyone could have prepared for uh, what happened last night. He was not prepared at all. He was a man in desperate need of an air horn or something. <laughs> he needed like just if whenever they got into a shouting match, he would just be like. That would be so funny. That would have made the whole right. thing. And we need to start a petition to get Samuel L. Jackson to be the moderator of the next <laughs> yes. debate. Yes, we are starting a petition right here. Did right I say now. you could talk? No. <laughs> we could have Michael Bay in the background, just like with different explosions yes. and stuff as I start arguing. I Because debates are no longer about an actual debate. It's just theatrics and just a bunch of people arguing back and forth and sounding like a bunch of crazy people. So, trying to sound smart, but don't sound smart, basically. It's funny, mm -hmm. my 15 year old sister sounds smarter than both of these men combined right now. Why are men? <laughs> <laughs> Just why are men? All we need to know. Exactly. Alright, so the goal for this episode is to be able to emphasize that systemic racism exists and is very much part of the fabric of our country. It has produced long-lasting damage to communities of color and has very much created the situation that our country is in right now. Even when we make progress towards ending systemic racism at various points of time, the people who benefit from it change it so that they can keep in power and keep the system going. Systemic racism will only end if we make all of the changes necessary and really look at the history and see where we went wrong and how we can correct these mistakes. So with that, I want to start with the passage of the 13th Amendment, where it outlawed slavery with a huge asterisk. Pretty big asterisk. I actually, in preparation for this podcast today, I looked up the actual like wording, the actual text of the 13th Amendment, just to see what was there, just to make sure that I had everything right. And when I tell you it was literally two sentences and at least a half or more of the entire 13th Amendment is that big asterisk, it really kind of put into perspective how little they actually cared about the passage of this amendment and making people free. It was all about, okay, 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 we know this is wrong, so we're not going to do it anymore unless you are basically in the prison system exactly. or in another system where we are holding you as a slave of the state. And it, it was disgusting in my opinion. But right, and so this, this exception within the 13th Amendment for people that are imprisoned, it leads to initially this system called convict leasing. Yeah, it definitely led to convict leasing and things like debt peonage and all these other things. But the main thing that basically was slavery 2.0, slavery upgraded, was convict leasing. And it happened for a very like substantial amount of time after slavery was actually abolished and outlawed in all of the states that were back then. I know it wasn't 50, I almost said all 50 states, but <laughs> um, it is outlawed in all 50 states. But when slavery was done, they still wanted a way to keep black people subordinate to white people. So they created all these little laws and these little asterisks in the law and just treated them unfairly to make it so they were portrayed as criminals. The more these people were portrayed as criminals, 
criminals, the more they got arrested for even more minor things. Not to say that there were some people out there who probably did some bad stuff. There definitely were, but it was on both sides. And if we look at the statistical records and stuff from back then of how many people were getting arrested, there is a large proportion of people of color who were arrested much more often than non-people of color. And so when this happened, the state would actually take these prisoners these people who were labeled as criminals and sell them to these different companies. And when they would sell them to these different companies, they were worked like absolute dogs. When I tell you they were worked like absolute dogs, they had absolutely no value to their life. They would be killed, women would be raped, they'd be used as sex toys, basically. The men would sit there and work these insanely long hours with barely any food and basically just a concentration camp, but for prisoners. And worse than actual prisoners today, and that's very hard to beat in my opinion because an actual prison today is absolute torture as well. But just seeing this system of convict leasing just trap these people back into slavery and then they took the value off of these people's lives is kind of what led to that mentality of like, the 13th Amendment, when you're in prison, you are a slave. Because at first, prison and slave was the exact same thing. Right, exactly. And even when convict leasing and all the kind of archaean systems that were installed during the late 1800s and early 1900s, even when those systems were outlawed, it, it still evolved. People are still being paid way, way, way below minimum wage for doing jobs like being firefighters in prison. Like out in California, there are a lot of prisoners that are fighting the wildfires those huge, massive, taking up five states wildfires. And the crazy thing is when these people get out of prison, they can't even go out and use these skills that they were taught in these prisons, in the jobs that they had while they were incarcerated. They can't go back out into the real world and use these skills. And that's just a pattern we see throughout all of history. You get your freedoms taken away from you, they make sure you never get them back, even if you are reformed, even if you were innocent. If you were innocent and you went to jail, they still kind of just take that label of criminal and put it on you. It's a very difficult system to get past after you're in it. It's kind of like what you just talked about. It's just a way for them to just keep you down. That's why I was scrolling like past, I think it was Instagram where I saw it, where they said, oh, prison is supposed to be like a, you know, a rehab. That's why when they come out, they do the same exact crime or they do a, a worse crime or something like that because it's not rehab when they go in there. It's literally like the Hunger Games. They got to, you know, <laughs> they got to yes. survive in there. Yeah. So it's kind of like you expect them to be a changed man or a changed woman when they come out of there, but you make it worse while they're in there. Exactly. So it's just, and, it's just weird. And even if they are somehow rehabilitated in a system that's not designed to rehabilitate exactly. people, they they're still blocked off from pretty much every single opportunity for upward mobility. Exactly, and that is how they keep you trapped in that system of slavery. You might not be a physical slave where you're out there working 24 seven, getting, not eating, not able to sleep, stuff like that, which does happen. If we ever talk about stuff that happens in solitary confinement and all that, I'll yeah. get a little bit more into that, but you are still a slave of the state. You're a mental slave, an emotional slave. You've been through all this trauma. You've seen all this crazy stuff that just traps you mentally. And when people say that they are a slave to the system, they don't mean that they are just sitting there and picking cotton. They're not sitting there and calling some white person master. They're sitting there and they're begging for help and they're begging for a job. They're begging to be in a better place, but yet they are still beaten down constantly, 
no matter how much they've changed, no matter how great of a person they are, no matter if they've saved a billion lives, they still have that label of criminal on them. And that Mm -hmm. is what continues to make them a slave every single day. After this system of convict leasing and looking more at Reconstruction, first of all, when Lincoln was assassinated, Andrew Johnson, a Democrat, took over, and he kind of halted a lot of the progress that could have been made within uh, how long he was president. He halted a lot of the progress that could have been made, but even then, Congress, they still passed the 14th Amendment, they still passed the 15th Amendment. They were still able to do some things that uh, helped to end systemic racism, but even then, even with the administration, of Grant and how progressive in a lot of ways he was, there was a lot of actually like economic turmoil during the years of Reconstruction because the North, the entire government, was having to spend money on having troops in the South. And that was starting to really hurt the economy. So by 1877, a lot of the Reconstruction efforts were dead. Southern states were able to govern themselves. They were able to institute really bad laws. Finally, in 1877, really with the election of 1876, it was between Samuel Tilden, a Democrat, and Rutherford B. Hayes, a Republican. And this is one of the most contested elections in American history. One of the only elections to really not end with anyone reaching 270 votes in the Electoral College. And because no one reached 270 votes, Congress had to decide the election. Congress proved at first unable to. So they created this delegation, really a super committee, of eight Republicans and seven Democrats. And they came up with this compromise called the Bargain of 1877, where the Republicans agreed to withdraw federal troops from the South, basically cede control the South to all the Southern governments, basically cede control to white people and all their evil devices. And in exchange, Rutherford B. Hayes would become president. This is really where the Republican Party gives up on creating true racial equity. Exactly. When they just start compromising for what the government needs or what the people who are in power need and not focusing on what the basic premises of our government is, which is the people you are governing for the people, by the people, of the people. It is not you are the government and we are something else. It's like they almost wouldn't even look out for someone who they thought as subordinate to them, even though they were sitting there trying their hardest to get rid of the systematic racism. When it got a little bit too hard and it got a little bit too pushy and they couldn't handle it anymore, they backed down instead of following what was morally right. And even if it's scary to follow what's morally right and you might lose a lot, you might lose a nation, something might happen, another war might break out, I personally feel that my morals must stand up to something that is as systematically deep as racism or as morally and emotionally deep as slavery and this sense of if you are imprisoned, you are a prisoner. You are not a human being who is imprisoned. And they just kind of gave up. And it's really sad to see that. And one of the main reasons why Republicans really gave up was because they felt like Oh, slavery is over. Oh, we're done now, I think. And what's really sad about them giving up is that during the Grant administration, there were actually a lot of black people that were serving in government that were being elected as representatives and everything. Mm -hmm. And 
when the bargain of 1877 happened, it all ended because the South went back to their voter suppression ways that the Grant administration had largely stopped. Mm -hmm. And that brings me to the point of taking away of voting rights. Even these people who were in the South or sometimes even in the North, and as the years went on, it got even more popular in the North and other states, but people would be denied their right to vote because, oh, your grandfather couldn't vote. Oh, you can't read? Oh, sorry. You didn't graduate. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. You don't have a job. Poll taxes. Yeah, poll taxes. They made it so it was so hard for people of color, black people. Recite the alphabet backwards after spinning 15 times. Yeah, what does that sound like? A sobriety (laughs) test on the side of the road. And it's just... I made that one up, by the way. (laughs) High five. High five, buddy. But... They really take all these different things to keep pushing people down. And it's like, no matter how much we're like, look, you got rid of the big thing. You got rid of the big issue. We are no longer slaves. You are right. We are no longer having the quote unquote war on drugs or the quote unquote war on crime. And we don't have systematic redlining and things like that. But at the same time, the mindset of these people is that these other people who don't look like us, don't sound like us, don't have our same culture are different and therefore they should be put down and so they'll find different ways to keep putting people down and we are not changing the actual mindset behind something right and further with the evolution of the republican party after they gave up on the fight for racial justice they started to become really the party of big business and huge industrialization and once they do that they've basically quit on racial justice and they're only for big business and then the democrats interestingly become kind of an economically progressive party but still like in the early 20th century they're not progressive at all on race and that really changes when Lyndon B. Johnson takes over and gets a lot of civil rights legislation passed. He gets a really good amount of economic reform passed. He was able to get stuff done at a rate that hasn't really been seen for years. Yeah, I remember when LBJ came into office. Back when I was alive. Yeah, back when I was alive. Back in my day. Uh, But just learning about what LBJ did just throughout the multiple years, like American history that I took when we learned about the exact same thing over and over and over again for basically four years, it was a lot about how so many Southerners were just so against him. And that's one of the main things that I really, really remember hearing about LBJ And I'm not the best with my presidents, but also being a North Carolinian, being from North Carolina, I would definitely like to apologize for Andrew Jackson or Johnson. Who was the one after Lincoln? Um, Johnson, but wasn't he from Tennessee? Was it it Jackson or Johnson from Tennessee? Either one. (laughs) Either one. Both pretty bad. The one from North Carolina, I will personally apologize for him. I've been wanting to do that publicly since I ever heard about him, but that's a whole different topic. (laughs) Right, exactly. And so once LBJ gets all this stuff passed, the Democratic Party, they realize, okay, we're a racial justice party now. And the Republican Party's like, oh, gee, I guess we'll all become racists. So <laughs> really, so Barry Goldwater at first really developed what is known as the Southern Strategy, where he would transform the Republican Party to be the party of white supremacy and to appeal to the Southern white voters. Mm-hmm. And Goldwater actually very much succeeded in this in the election of uh, 19, uh, what was it, 1964, right? I think so. Yeah, it was 1964. He largely succeeded with this, except he only really won the southern states. That's it. 
there was no chance of Goldwater winning because of what LBJ did in that campaign with the famous Daisy ad. Mm -hmm. There was no way that Barry Goldwater could win a state other than the Southern states. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's a main strategy that we still see right. to this day. We see a large amount of red states in the South. And that's because for such a long time, the Republicans have been specifically pandering to the Southern states and specifically middle class to upper class kind of old minded white folks. And mm -hmm. not to be not to say that in like a way like, oh, all old white people are conservative or Republican because no, that's not true. But that's the kind of people they're catering towards. The gun-toting, redneck, I eat barbecue on the weekends, but I kill my own cows type stuff. And just, right. so. Wow. <laughs> I told you, I'm, I'm, I'm from the South South. I'm not from the Florida South. But right. Yeah, we don't really consider ourselves the South. Except for maybe Pensacola a bit. I think sorry, that, Pensacola sorry definitely to our does. listeners in Pensacola. We still love you. Yeah, we, it's all love for the South over here. Yeah. Uh, just don't be racist. Yep. <laughs> That's exactly. the only stipulation. All right, so the Reagan campaign, really the Nixon campaign and the Reagan campaign really take this Southern strategy and optimize it so that they can win the entire country. Nixon marketed himself as, at the time, the law and order candidate compared to uh, Hubert Humphrey. Mm -hmm. Even though the election was close, he was still able to win. And then Reagan, he was able to, with Lee Atwater, his main campaign strategist, he was able to blow out all the Democrats that he ran against. He, like, he blew out Jimmy Carter. Mm -hmm. He blew out Walter Mondale. By a lot. By, yeah. By, by a lot. By a lot. And I mean, Mondale only won Minnesota. <laughs> That's just so That's depressing. It. That is that depressing. depressing. Really. Yeah. <laughs> That's who he Right. All right, so Lee Atwater, he really, in this interview in 1981, I don't remember who it was with, but he really explained the Southern strategy. He said, y'all don't quote me on this. You start out in 1954 by saying N-word, N-word, N-word. By 1968, you can't say the N-word. That hurts you. Backfires. So you say stuff like forced busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. You're getting so abstract now that you are talking about cutting taxes. And all these things you are talking about are totally economic things, and a byproduct of them is that blacks get hurt worse than whites. Let's just point out, he said, don't quote me on this, and then you quoted him. Yep, very <laughs> savage right there. Savage. But anyway, this is what Atwater has said, that basically it's shaped Republican politics for generations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of just explains how we can't explicitly be like N-word, N-word, N-word. We can't explicitly whip black people anymore because they didn't pick enough cotton for a day or something like that. So they just start doing, I don't even want to call them euphemisms because that's not exactly what they Dog are. Dog whistles more. Yeah. yeah, and so it just, it goes further and further and further down the line until they're just basically grasping at straws and being like, there's no other way to oppress these people. So you know what? Police brutality. Exactly. So now kind of shifting uh, back a few decades, we need to talk about Birth of a Nation for a few minutes. Oh, Birth of a Nation, it was a movie made by some guy named D.W. Griffith. And
and it was about how the KKK stopped Reconstruction and uh, reinstituted a lot of segregation stuff, and also created these myths about black people that have really, really persisted in our culture for generations. And it was really one of the main origins for the wholesale marketing of the criminalization of black people. Mm -hmm. When it comes to Birth of a Nation and what it portrayed, it was all of these... The movie was completely with white people, by the way. How do you make a movie yeah. with black people with all white people? But... It call was, that blackface. Yeah, we don't, we don't do that anymore. If you do, you're racist. Um, but it just showed how messed up of a mindset and how criminalized black people as a whole were. They were seen as these scary... They weren't even seen as human. They were seen as things. And also specifically as threats to white women. Yeah, exactly. That's what they try to feed on, though. They try to feed on fear because that's... It's pretty much when it comes to the unknown type of thing. If they don't know what it is, they're going to automatically just feel fear. And that's kind of how this whole thing came about. <laughs> it's just because they felt like at the time that they were superior because they were more developed than, you know, our kind back then. Which is kind of like... <laughs> how, like how could you, like, tell your how your development is better than exactly, ours when you're relying exactly. on other people to pick your cotton but not my issue. That's why, like, when it comes to those phrases where they're like, oh, go back to your own home or go back to... I was like, first of all, you wasn't born here either. <laughs> your ancestors came from across the water, too, just like me. So nobody, here. <laughs> nobody owned this land here. No. If, wanted, if you want to speak facts. Unless but. your ethnicity has Cherokee. Yeah, Chippewa, unless you're Native American like. and you're native to the land, then yeah. But you're not, so you can't say that. I always get angry when they say mm. that. But it's just like, we didn't ask to come over here. <laughs> we were brought over here. It's like, they were scared of us and our culture. So they flipped that fear basically back onto themselves, saying that we were the predators and just kind of sat there and made it so, oh, our white women are going to get raped. Yeah. Not even our women. They didn't even consider black women women. They were just like, y'all were just black. Cattle. It's yeah. literally cattle. Literally. Like, that's why when people say the word mother effer, like, it's so terrible. So I'm not the only one no. who knows the history no. of that. I don't know what oh, is Oh, oh my God. It's pretty well. Oh. <laughs> like, long story short, basically, um, how my mom explained it to me is that they will have the... Um, the slaves, um, man or boy, doesn't matter, literally fornicate with their mothers. Yeah. And that's where the term MFR came from. Yeah, and they'd use it as a term of embarrassment yeah. towards them because Pretty they're like, much. oh, you had sex with your mom. Ha ha. Mm -hmm. We forced you to do that. You're a terrible person now, so you're this thing. Yeah. Oh, God. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this this got to be real quick. I remember the first time I heard about that. Yeah. I was wow. Like, I was like, wow. Okay. That's why I don't like, I don't like cursing, period, because it's like bad already, but I, that's like a big no-no. I'd never say that word. Yeah, it's like, my dad, he used to, my dad likes to curse. My dad's this big six, eight, 300 pound black man, but even he won't say, like, that. Yeah, that's like, if you say enough. that, that's like a whole nother level of like, you're being angry right now. Yeah, it's like, if someone called me an N-word, I'd be like, okay, if you call me an mf -er, we hands are being thrown. Someone take my hoops. I'm gonna be full mf -er on you. Like, If you really want to call me that, then go ahead. Yeah. 
was crazy. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> the dichotomy of where we were raised. I know. Okay, so let's talk about Jim Crow for one second. It happened. That was the one second we just talked about. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. How to wrap Segregation. up Jim Crow. We could talk we Jim Crow all day. Yeah, yeah, we can. But we trust that a lot of people, even in their whitewashed history curriculums, no, they know about the, segregation. Yeah. Okay, What's so... What's segregation? <laughs> <laughs> nah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm good. All right, so... A really kind of lesser-known policy during this whole entire period is redlining. Absolutely. I wrote on that one. (laughs) Basically, it was legal at a point to do redlining. It was legal. Basically, what they would do is... Created by the federal government. Yeah, it was banned in 1968. That's how, like, it wasn't even that long ago. That was, like, six years ago. People like Ben Shapiro, they're like, well, redlining ended. Well... Well, yeah, but it basically, for like the decades that it was in place, it segregated cities. <laughs> exactly, and that segregation, it that mindset yeah. is still there. Right. It's so, lasting effects. So redlining is really where black people were systematically prevented from moving into any suburban areas. Yeah, any suburban areas, nice areas. You wanted to live in a high-rise tower? Nope, sorry, you yeah. had to live right. in... Basically, they, the streets of Compton are wide. Because, like, right. the loans, like, they, they were asking to do, you know, to move into these neighborhoods. They would see where they're, like, are and then, like, consider it a risk. So the banks were, like, less likely to give them that loan or invest in mm-hmm. any business they try to do. Yeah. Which kind of sucks because that's how you get the ghettos. and mm-hmm. right. The Homeowner Loan Corporation mm-hmm. created these maps where... Each like area within the region was marked in a certain color. Green was the best color, where all the best mm. people, aka white, <laughs> had two kids, a uh, dog. Yes, American tree. Oh, a white picket fence with <laughs> two trees in the backyard. <laughs> two trees, exactly two. <laughs> if you have any more than two trees, we're sorry, you're kicked out. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and red areas, which is where the term redlining comes from. They were the worst areas with the worst people, and by worst people, they meant black. <laughs> I, they don't care how rich you are. If they you're don't black, care. You're it, like instantly like <laughs> yeah. And, and there were studies like there have been studies done that have said that people who were in red areas there was no correlation between them not being able to pay off their mortgage. That belief was completely false. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They only had this belief because of. The historical belief that these people were criminals, these people were lazy, these people lived on the streets, these mm-hmm. people were all entrapped in all these different sorts of things. So it just it shows that if these people can't integrate with more people around them, the same mindset's just going to be held onto them, and they're going to be put into these red line communities, and they're not going to get any money put back into their community so they can keep it going. Right. The trickle down effect, pretty much from that. Um, that we're still experiencing today is just like so homes in the black neighborhoods are generally and historically worth less than the white homes and it's because developers and businesses that make that neighborhood were kind of like you know they didn't get long so you know they probably not kept up as well as other places or other neighborhoods and then when you talk about taxes the taxes was pretty low too mm-hmm. and once you know you have less tax dollars for schools and stuff like that that's how where you know you have fewer qualified teachers to teach the class 
fewer students being in the class, fewer opportunities for their students. So that pretty much make the graduation rate for African-Americans go low, meaning that they most likely don't go to college. Mm -hmm. So it's, that's why when they like that saying, you should fear educated black person or educated. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because they try to prevent us from like getting an education. Yeah, mm -hmm. learning about ourselves. And I even see quote unquote redlining in like the school system that I mm -hmm. grew up in. Yeah. Um, I went to a predominantly hood, urban, ghetto, whatever type of school you want to call it my freshman year of high school and everyone would be like, oh, this, this school is so ghetto. This school has so many shootings, blah, 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 blah. I met some of the nicest people in my of my life there. Some of the smartest, most amazing, most talented, just artistic-minded people there who were just free thinkers. Mm -hmm. And then after my freshman year of high school, I wound up moving to the high school that I wound up graduating from. And I just saw this huge dichotomy in how people were treated because it was in the suburbs, it was in this area where people weren't as open-minded towards stuff, and it wouldn't be outward racism. People wouldn't literally Very be like- passive-aggressive. Yeah, they'd be <laughs> like, oh, my Microaggressions, that's my, what My name is Chad, and I'm going to, this actually happened, this is a true story. Not the same name, his name is not Chad, but- Oh, my man. Name, I know, it's even worse than Chad, I'll tell y'all later, but th this, this person, he put his face in front of an exhaust pipe and his face, because, you know, he drove, like, a big yee-yee truck with the big cowboy hats and everything. And, you know, when you put your face in front of an exhaust pipe, it not only will probably give you cancer, but it makes your face black. And he posted something to Snapchat and said, oh, wow, can I say the N-word now? And just, you see things like that, and it coincides with, like... The groups of people you see come from the exact same areas. You go into the neighborhood right across the street... All white people with three-story houses, four-car garages, golf carts everywhere. You go a mile down the street, you literally get into a part that everyone labels as, oh, this is the worst part. Yeah. You can get more drugs here. You can find guns here. You can find people walking the streets more. There aren't white suburban moms with mm -hmm. their iPhones and their AirPods walking a dog. It's probably someone's older brother walking their dog because their mom's outside getting money trying to support their family. And it's just, it's such a weird dichotomy to have seen I, Yeah, I definitely had an experience like that because um, one of my friends, um, not going to mention her name because she does go to his school. <laughs> but um, she's, you know, I know her family is probably, you know, more wealthy than my family because, you know, I'm a single parent household. She got two parents, so mm -hmm. do the math there. <laughs> but um, like she offered to like go to the beach like by her grandmother's house. And I was like, oh, so your grandmother has a, a house on the beach. That's nice. So coming from like my side of town, I live in Jacksonville. So the Arlington area is kind of like the area that was like the city life, but then now it's dead and they move, you know, elsewhere. So coming from my area to like the beach area, it's a total different dynamic of how things were. People were outside just having mm -hmm. their strollers taking a jog and everything but then at the same time i still didn't feel safe over there because i know i'm a person of color and it's mostly white people around here so it's like you still it's like it doesn't matter it's still you know you still feel uncomfortable either way yeah mm -hmm. and i grew up in um a mixed race household my mom was white my dad was black um and so my dad was from north carolina and we'd constantly go back to like where he was from, see his family, see my other family. 
Um, little bit of backstory. My dad's the youngest of ten. Um, sadly, oh. yeah. Ooh, girl. <laughs> <laughs> sadly, a lot of my family has struggled with things like addiction, mm-hmm. poverty, um, going in and out of jail, um, try, like just all this different bad stuff. But if we look at my mom's side of the family, all went to college, all married, have kids, two and a half kids and a dog and a minivan and all that stuff. And at first I was like, oh, that that's just... That's just how it was. My, they just lived different lives. But growing up and seeing that the differences and how each of the siblings on each side of the family were, how different my aunts and uncles were comparatively on the white side and the black side, and what my black family would teach me, what my white family would teach me, and how they would interact, you could tell that there was such a deep-rooted difference in the cultures of these two things that come from such a deeply rooted history of systemic racism and thinking and even my own dad wanted to get into psychology for a while and go back into his community and kind of try to break this mentality within everyone else because you can just see how much people group themselves together based on their race and it's not just oh I'm white you're black it's I'm black I need to act like this. I can't go out and get my education. I'm probably going to go to jail. That's why I want to be a therapist. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's exactly why. Because a lot of black people, we have this uh, uh, connotation that we don't go to doctors and then we don't go to therapy when we need mm-hmm. therapy. We don't talk so about our feelings. It, it's a whole trickle-down effect again. Right. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, you can't blame them because when you go to the doctor, they might treat you differently than your white counterpart. And that's where it comes to the play where I was like, yeah, I could have a baby in a hospital. If I had my choice, I would probably just have a home birth with midwives only because the rate of black women dying from childbirth is way higher than mm-hmm. any other minority. And I'm personally scared, honestly. So I like I have to have my mom there. I don't care about my spouse. If my mom <laughs> is not there, I'm going to be really pissed. If my mom is not <laughs> I'm not pushing that baby out. Exactly. I do not care what happens. It's not gonna come I will out. sew myself up before that baby comes out. <laughs> but it's just like, that's where systemic racism is. It's in mm-hmm. everything. That's why it's going to be so hard to get rid of it because it's deeply, like, it's deeply involved in everything, every aspect of exactly. our lives. Exactly. And the best <laughs> thing that people can do is talk. Yeah. Like what you said about black people, like the stereotype of them not going to doctors and everything, mm-hmm. it's because of this distrust exactly. in the medical system. Exactly. I remember hearing, it was in an international relations class uh, with uh, Dr. Uh, Daphne Cooper. Shout out right here. <laughs> Love you. Yo, shout out Dr. Eisen, Dr. Andrew Eisen, leader of the CEP program. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We love him. You're um, our trooper. Shout yes. out Dr. Capus Toro and Dr. Kramer. Yes. Um, Dr. Bell. Are you, are you just doing shout outs now? Yes. <laughs> oh, but what were you saying? All right. So what I'm really saying is that she told the class about what are known as the Tuskegee medical experiments. Mm. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> that, and so there were these group of black people that got syphilis And so there were these researchers that were like, you know, I wonder how people, if they go through all of syphilis, how it would be. And a simple shot of penicillin would have cured every single one of the subjects of this research trial. And they were never given this shot. The disease progressed 
for years and years and years. And this just really creates this entire distrust of how black people have been dehumanized to that point where they're used as lab rats in a medical study. And being a psychology major, we have learned so much about how unethical it is to do any type of experiment on humans, pretty much, unless right. it's like you're doing a test or you're like seeing something or something like that. So the fact that they literally gave specifically black people syphilis and then that syphilis continued to spread throughout the black community. Specifically black men. <laughs> Specifically black men. And we see... So um, they sleep with their wives and their wives get it. Then the wives get pregnant. And then the kid gets it. It's, it's, it's a whole thing. thing. That's how biology works, everyone. <laughs> Literally, it's when, a whole thing. When your mommy and daddy love each other very much, but the government gives you syphilis, <laughs> you probably die. Yeah. Yes. And then it's the, it's the same thing with the other case where the black women, um, they were getting hysterectomies because, you know, at that time, a lot of them couldn't read or they told them about a document saying oh yeah this is what it's gonna do and then they go ahead and sign it and then next thing you know the uterus is is not gone. there it's gone so it's no, like, my like, uterus is gone no yeah. oh where did this big scar on my stomach come from oh uh, yeah by the way we removed oh your uterus yeah like the, what like yeah i see why they have a distrust <laughs> in Ooh, the girl. healthcare system but it's like if you kind of think about it, the healthcare system don't... It's a business. It's a corporation. Shouldn't the, be. The, exactly. Exactly. It's this is like, why we need better health insurance and everything. Yeah. I mean, this is why we need better presidential debates so we can actually talk yes. about stuff like <laughs> this. Why, why is a group of college kids having a better discussion than two grown men. That's why my professor apologized. She said, I'm so sorry for my generation doing this to you guys. Doctor, oh, you're going to get the doctor, shorter end of the stick. I said, yeah, you, 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 I think we already figured that out. <laughs> I mean, my uh, my FSM professor, Dr. Kramer, who we've already shouted out, still love you. Shout out. Yep. Anyway, she basically today offered counseling services <laughs> for, <laughs> for people that lost her. the debate. <laughs> And I'm like, yep, I need that. All of us was having just like an aneurysm. We were like, is this really what they're doing right now? I know. Coming from someone who literally saw one of their favorite teachers cry when Trump got elected because she was so afraid that her marriage to her wife wouldn't be legal oh. anymore. Oh, God. I mm. cannot see another four years of this orange person. <laughs> I, I, I would have a few other choice words if this was not a G-rated podcast. But if this person was not is reelected, it's just it's gonna baffle me. It's he. It's and gonna then especially me. the person that he nominated to fulfill the um, you know the supreme. Yeah, uh, we're gonna have we're gonna have an, another entire episode on the future of the Supreme Court. Stay it's tuned. bleak. <laughs> Stay it's tuned. bleak. Uh, the, the future of the American government system right now. It's not looking good. I, a lot of it. It was good at first. It was good when George Washington said, "Look, don't have political parties and don't have." international affairs and then we want to mess it all up yeah. you're like yeah you say that so russia you with me or like, or like china yeah, what's how up you doing over yeah. there? So north korea you now looking ever. pretty good <laughs> like, <laughs> like they just <sighs> whoever gives them the most power at whatever time that they need more power they're like yo hey, yo ma let me get your <laughs> nuclear weapons though for right. <laughs> A lot. I yeah, think that that about the government and just. Mm -hmm. All right, that's our show. Next week, 
we will release part two of our conversation about the history of systemic racism. We're going to talk about the war on drugs, the war on crime, a lot of depressing stuff, but somehow we still laugh during some of it. Our editor and producer is Grace Herzog. The intro and outro song was composed by Joakim Karud. Thanks for listening. See you next week.